We're going to start out today with an interview we asked for and received an opportunity to talk to Leonard Steinhorn, American University Professor of History and uh, Associate Professor of Political Science, uh, and very, very close follower of all things Washington, D.C. and U.S. government and gun discussion and the January 6th insurrection in the committee. And part of our good CBS radio network. Oh, yes, yes, CBS analyst. Yeah, there we go. That's the linchpin that uh, gives us opportunity. Good morning, Leonard. Thanks for calling in. Morning. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks. Really do appreciate this. Let's talk about sort of the pivot point that's happening with January 6th before we get into gun laws and things like that. Uh, this public hearing, uh, sort of Watergate-esque, uh, probably no coincidence, it's on the 50th anniversary of Watergate. What do we hope to get out of this? Because the, um, you know, people who don't believe in the January 6th committee are so adamant that it's just a, a partisan witch hunt. What are some outcomes of public hearings in the January 6th uh, committee? Well, look, here's the bottom line for them. They have uh, over 140,000 documents. They've collected information from about 1,000 witnesses. And what they're going to try to do is to present the evidence and present it as a story of what happened on January 6th, who is behind it, some of the extremists that were involved in it, Potential connections to former President Trump, and basically give a larger sense that this was is continues to be it was and continues to be a real threat to our democratic institutions. If you try to deny the sort of legitimate election of a president of the United States, so they're going to try and tell that story. Now they've got a lot of headwinds. Uh, you're talking about, as you say, a lot of Republicans who just are going to turn this off. In fact of all the cable and broadcast networks, Fox is not going to be covering this. So they've got headwinds there. They've got headwinds because people's attention has changed. You know, people aren't talking about January 6th the way they were 17 months ago. You know, they're talking about Ukraine or inflation or guns or crime or baby formula. So this is an attempt to sort of get people to think again that yes, we've got all these challenges facing our country, but at the core of our country is our democracy, and if we don't preserve it, we are gonna be in far more trouble than any high gas price is going to give us, and here's the reason why people, this is the story we're gonna tell. When I first started following this after it happened, I was always very hesitant to call it an insurrection. But now with the uh, sedition charges against the Oath Keepers and the new riot-related charges uh, against the Proud Boys, is that hesitancy now unfounded that insurrection was on the mind of at least a few of the folks that went in the Capitol? Yes, and in fact, I think their first hearing is going to focus a fair amount on the Proud Boys and their involvement, and potentially I would guess that the evidence they have connecting some of those Proud Boys with people in the Trump camp, whether it's the Trump campaign or the Trump White House or the Trump family. So they're going to be telling that story and making people worry and saying, look, this wasn't just some peaceful rally outside the Capitol. This was a coordinated effort by people to overturn the, an election in the United States of America in which the courts and the public officials said there was no fraud, it wasn't rigged, everything went pretty well. In fact, the Trump administration's head of sort of election cybersecurity said it was as safe an election as you get. 
Um, so this, you know, they're going to try and say, look, we have to take these things seriously. We've been given the birthright of a democracy, and if people are going to try and overturn an election because they're unhappy that they lost, then that undermines democracy, and it sends us down a path that we don't want to go, and it's a path called authoritarianism, and it's a path called instability, and it's a path called, ultimately, the loss of our democracy and our democratic institutions, if an election can be overturned so easily. So I think that's the story they want to tell. They want to give people pause and make people think, oh my gosh, maybe there is something larger at stake than the immediate issues facing my family, and that we want to be able to bequeath this democracy to future generations. Now, to some people that may sound too hysterical. To some people it may sound too alarmist. Um, but what they're going to try and do is make the case through the evidence, not through all of these statements from members of Congress. This is going to be an evidence-based story that they're going to tell and basically give people pause and say, hey, maybe I really need to think about this. Let me ask you this question, Leonard. Did Nancy Pelosi uh, rejecting the Republicans uh, who were put forth for membership in the committee, did she make a mistake there? I mean, isn't the adversarial system what usually brings out the truth, like in a courtroom where you have the defense and the prosecution, each presenting evidence, each presenting a case, and then people could look at the verdict and say, gee, it was tough, but it was fair? I think from a theoretical basis, I would agree with you. Um, it would be good to have buy-in. The question is whether some of those members who are fully in Donald Trump's camp, who deny the election of Joe Biden, would have been obstructionist and sort of uh, limited the committee's ability to gather evidence and to sort of present it to the people of the United States. Um, and so I think she made a decision there that that, look, we can't have people who basically say this was a stolen election, who basically say that January 6th was just a civic protest um, being on this committee, because in the long run, you know, we do see what happened at the Capitol. It was a violent effort to overturn an election. People were setting up uh you know, sort of scaffolding with, uh, you know, to be able to hang Mike Pence in a symbolic way. They were actually searching out Nancy Pelosi. They were searching out Mike Pence. They were searching out other members of Congress in the Senate. Um, and so her point is that, you know, anybody who doesn't see the seriousness of this and is going to simply be sort of reading from the hymn book of, of Donald Trump is going to create more problems getting the truth out than facilitating it. So from a theoretical basis, yes, because what you had, you know, 50 years ago, 49 years ago with the Senate committee were people who supported and voted for Richard Nixon, but were willing to step back and say, we've got a problem here, we've got to look at the evidence. And if you think about one of the most important members of that committee, Howard Baker, and his famous phrase, you know, what did the president know and when did he know it? It's because a lot of Republicans were willing to listen to the evidence and become sort of part of the fact-finding mission of the Watergate Committee. And it wasn't altogether clear that some of the people who Kevin McCarthy would have been putting on there would have done that. So this is why she was open to a Liz Cheney, whose conservative credentials are pretty much unchallenged, or Adam Kinzinger, you know, a, a veteran uh, who's been a staunch Republican. Um, so she bought herself some cover in that regard, 
but nothing is going to satisfy the hardcore believers in, in former President Trump. But couldn't you make the same case about the Democrats on that committee? I mean, they all participated in the impeachment of the president. They were all excited about getting him out of office. They eagerly bought into the Russian gate conspiracy theory of the, the Steele dossier. I mean, aren't they guilty of the same thing you're accusing the Republicans of? I'm not so sure they all bought into the Steele dossier. Um, and there was involvement with the Russians. I mean, you go look at the Mueller report, and there was involvement with the Russians. It just didn't reach the level, as Mueller said, of criminal conspiracy. Um, so, again, there was evidence, plenty of evidence of that that was out there. So, it's you know, the point is, is that are people open to the evidence um, that's going to be unfolding? But yes, the you know uh, the Trump folks and Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans are going to be able are going to say exactly what you're saying that yeah they may be trying to put out the evidence but their thumb is on the scale because they're looking at it through partisan lenses. So the question for me at least is are they going to be able to present the evidence as is and are we going to be able as sort of a jury to be able to evaluate it or are they going to try and spin it in such a way um, that it doesn't allow for any openness of judgment that we as citizens have to make uh, when thinking about these issues. Now, moving on to the topic of guns, just uh, in the history lens, uh, put your history hat on here, uh, how much of a phenomenon is this that's happening in Washington, D.C. right now? We have public opinion and an incident significantly pushing Congress to do something which they, you know, at least the majority-wise, didn't want to do in the past. So uh, just how, uh, how significant a dot on the U.S. Uh, timeline is this? Well, I'd say it's good and significant that people are responding sort of this sense of existential angst and anger and frustration that these mass shootings are happening on a daily basis. We have more mass shootings this year than we have days in the calendar. Um, and I think people are genuinely scared. And when it goes into a grocery store where people are shopping and, and it's race-based, and when it goes into a school where innocent fourth graders are being shot down and killed, and some of them trying to survive by taking the blood of a child next to them and putting it on them, that's compelling. That's emotional. That brings this to the fore. So I think, you know, there's a, a tipping point that we're at for action. The question is, how much action are they going to actually take? And to be able to get a compromise that brings on not just 10 Republicans, but since John Cornyn, the senator from Texas, who's Mitch McConnell's lieutenant in the Senate, since he's in this sort of working group, I don't think he's going to be satisfied with just getting 10 Republicans to agree to this. I think he wants to do something that gets maybe 25 Republicans on it, so it really becomes bipartisan. But if that's the case, then it's going to be far more watered down than even that Manchin-Toomey bill from nine years ago, uh, in which they wanted to be able to expand background checks uh, uh, to gun shows and internet sales. That may not even be on the table. What may be on the table is expanding background checks for people 18 to 21 years old. What may be on the table is not a national red flag uh, law, but incentives for states to be able to pass red flag laws. What will be on the table are certain measures to help secure schools a little bit and some mental health measures. Far less than what the Democrats uh, would like, but enough to be able to build a compromise and say, yeah, 
we're responding and getting something done because we are recognizing the problem. And I think the Democrats, such as Senator Chris Murphy, who came to national prominence after that horrible tragedy in Sandy Hook, he's desperate for anything. So, yes, I think he will not let the perfect be the enemy of the mildly good in this particular case. Chris Wallace wrote a great book called Countdown 1945, in which he recounts the trials of President Truman and his administration in trying to determine whether or not to actually drop the atomic bomb once they found out it would work. And you you get the sense that there was a lot of give and take in the government at that point, that people could discuss ideas and they could be on either side of the issue and yet still arrive at a valid conclusion. I don't see that in Washington today. Everything seems to be through the partisan lens. How are we ever going to get anything done about gun guns and this terrible situation I'll admit we have in this country if we can't discuss the issues openly and frankly and bring them out for a full public airing well I would use your radio show as a model to be honest um, because you have people with differing points of view who talk with each other but realize the good faith of the person on the other side that you have people have different lived experiences and they have to be able to share that and and sort of uh, be able to listen to each other. I think the, the real dilemma is when the rubber hits the road, which is after people do listen to each other, is how much does somebody give up to be able to come to something that reaches the common good and is acceptable to a large number of people. So I think what we've lost is uh, the art of compromise. Um, and the other thing that we've lost is with gerrymandering and congressional districts, what you have now are so many safe seats that are either D30 or R30, meaning, or, or D20, R20, meaning that, you know, the Republicans will win that seat by 20 or 30 percentage points, or the Democrats will, that if somebody actually compromises uh, on a particular issue, they worry that they could get primaried in their district and therefore face somebody more conservative or somebody far more liberal uh, and not be able to win their primary and get reelected. Um, so I think we have a bunch of structural issues that we have to address in this country that keep us from coming to some sort of compromise. And I think these are some serious discussions that we have to have. But again, these don't fit well on, you know, sort of on Twitter. Um, and it doesn't fit well on Facebook, where the algorithms only support your own particular point of view and send you further to the extremes. Um, so there's a lot of sort of centrifugal forces that are pulling people away from the center and away from the ability to compromise on things. And I think that's what we have to face as a country right now. So if the January 6th committee is going to say, we have threats to our democracy from what happened on January 6th, I would love to see another commission that basically talks about the threats to our democracy from exactly what you say, which is the inability for people to talk with each other, the echo chambers that we're in, and the increasing difficulty of people in politics to be able to compromise and to come to some sort of deal that acknowledges the, the best of both sides and the concerns of both sides and that we sort of meld them together into the law. 
Well, thank you for the remark about Joe and I trying to be part of the solution, although you've never heard us off mic, so... <laughs> Joe don't want to. <laughs> Joe still has the scar in his forehead from the pen that I threw over there, so... But thank you for that, and uh, I'm just hoping maybe some government program can bring us all back together again. I'm not sure what that would be, <laughs> but as a Democrat, I think maybe there could be some help somewhere in Washington that could help us, uh, help us with hope. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks you for all Thanks, your Leonard. remarks and your time. We very much appreciate Appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Dr. Steinhorn. Take care. Always, always my pleasure. Thanks so much, Dr. Leonard Steinhorn, American University professor of history and associate professor of political science, and a CBS News correspondent, uh, author of a book in defense of the baby boomers. So, uh, saying maybe in fact they're the greatest generation. <laughs> so who knows? I, I wouldn't want to sit at that table and argue that out. But uh, yeah, we appreciate his time.